Well, let us open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4, and this morning we're considering verses 13 through 18. And I think it'll be clear this morning that um, the last song that we sang together is the conviction of our hearts. If the Lord doesn't build his church, then in vain are we gathered here this morning. It is truly the work of God. It is the work of the Lord. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were an educated, common man, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when he had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in that name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. As we make our way into this passage, once again, I need you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3, where it all began. I want us to consider together Genesis 3 verses 4 through 5. I want to make a few introductory remarks that I believe will set the stage for our considerations this morning. This is, of course, Moses' account of the fall of man into sin. It tells us how everything went from very good to very bad in an instant. God gave a specific command. Don't eat of this tree. If you eat of it, you will die. Then we read about the serpent, who is Satan. He appeared, and Eve, notice it was Eve, not Adam, just saying, Eve started a dialogue with Satan. Adam was probably meditating <laughs> on the Lord. But then Eve started talking with Satan, and here's Satan's central argument, and the one that ultimately convinced Eve to plunge into sin. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so she took of its fruit and ate. If you have ever wondered what the core problem with the world is, then look no further than Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. I believe the wicked nature of Satan's first attack upon the human race is perceived in the words themselves. Please consider the true craftiness of what he said. You will know what? 
good and evil. I submit to you with full confidence that Eve already knew what good and evil was. Here's what I mean. Eve knew that good was found only and exclusively within God's revealed will. Don't eat of the tree. Therefore, Eve also knew that evil was to go outside of God's revealed will. Or to put it differently, Eve knew. You can't miss this. Eve knew that good and evil were defined by God. Her and Adam's calling was primarily to walk in submission to God's word. When you understand this, you begin to understand the evil of Satan's attack and the core problem with the world. Now it becomes clear what Satan meant when he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It means this, you will know good and evil according to your own desires. You will know good and evil as defined by you. God's world Word will no longer be the ultimate standard for good and evil. Eve, remember, you will be like God. Emancipate yourself, free yourself from God, and become your own standard for defining what good and evil is. Think and do as you please, Eve. Brothers and sisters, Genesis 3 unlocks the problem with the world. And what is the problem with the world? Here it is. The fall of man into sin means that now all human beings without exception are born with an unrelenting craving for autonomy expressed first and foremost in their thinking. Or to put it even more bluntly, the fall of man into sin means that we no longer want to think as creatures. We now want to think as though we were God. And this, the Bible says, is the central issue of humanity. Paul described the problem clearly in the book of Ephesians with statements like this, and you were dead in trespasses, carrying out the desires of the body and of what? The mind. Chapter 2, verse 3, verse 3. Or you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Or consider this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, 7. Consequently, we are told in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to be transformed by the renewal of what? Of your mind. Human thinking has to be renewed because it went rebellious. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, shows us the practical outworking of this awful reality. The question they asked, what shall we do with these men in verse 16 is revealing. It reveals several things about the mind that is void 
of the regenerating work of the Spirit. And now I will show you what these are. First, that question of verse 16 reveals that the unregenerate mind denies the work of Christ. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The rulers of Israel were witnessing events that were utterly incomprehensible to them. There were many things taking place right in front of their eyes, but none of them was what not, none of it was registering in their minds. They could not process what they were seeing. Ultimately, they were being hit in the face with truth. In verse 13, we see the first lap to the face. The apostles had several characteristics that baffled the rulers of Israel. On the one hand, they were bold. On the other hand, they were uneducated and common men. This combination, says Luke, was astonishing to the leaders of Israel. Let's see why this was the case. First, let us consider the word, the word boldness. Now, before I say anything, anything else, listen to me carefully. If repentance, if repentance is the need of the moment with regard to the world, boldness is the need of the moment with regard to Christians. If you are not bold, you risk losing your faith. Why? Because the only alternative to boldness is compromise. Compromise is driven by a desire for self-preservation, while boldness is driven by a desire for Christ's exaltation. So what is boldness? What does it mean? One theologian, Alan Thompson, he wrote a book called The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. He points out that the word boldness always occurs in the context of hostility and persecution. Therefore, Acts 4 is a great example of what boldness is. As we can clearly see, the apostles were under great pressure by the religious leaders of Israel. Now, with that contextual truth in mind, Tom Thompson explains boldness with these words, and I quote, boldness is a freedom to proclaim the truth of God's saving purposes in the Lord Jesus, along with the accompanying warnings and promises, even in context of opposition, threats of personal harm, persecution, or derision. Boldness is willingness to be clear in the face of fear, end quote. Willingness to be clear in the face of fear. Now, the word clear also goes back to the heart of boldness. According to the lexicon that I consulted, boldness means without ambiguity, without ambiguity. Boldness, then, is fearless gospel clarity in the face of danger. So Peter was clear, and he was fearless. But this didn't make sense for the religious leaders of Israel because their boldness seemed to have been unfounded. After all, the apostles were also uneducated common men. Uneducated comes from the Greek word 
agramatoi. Does that sound familiar? Like, <laughs> no, it doesn't sound familiar. We don't use it every day. A theist, no God. A gramatoi, no grammar. Illiterate, they were illiterate. The word common is a little bit more aggressive. In the Greek is idiotis. Right, like the English word, idiots. Idiots. But the sense is similar in both words. Both words indicate commonality, lack of education. The apostles didn't have anything special about them. In fact, their upbringing, according to these religious rulers, seemed to indicate they were good for nothing. But here they were, uneducated, common men, idiots. Again, standing against the rulers, making themselves clear. And with no educational background to back them up, what was their secret? This is where we begin to understand the unregenerate mind, because what the leaders did know is what we read at the end of verse 13. The rulers did recognize that the apostles had been with whom? With Jesus. There's something I really love about this. These rulers knew that these were Christ's disciples. And I believe that little note there at the end of verse 13 is to reveal that the rulers could not deny that the apostles' boldness and their clarity was directly tied to the man they themselves had crucified, the Lord Jesus. The rulers remembered. Why is this so impactful, at least to me? Here's why. The boldness and the clarity of the disciples had no explanation other than Jesus Christ. They had been with Jesus, but there is more. I believe their astonishment gives us a clue to the fact that these leaders, as they heard the apostles preach, they understood that there was truth in what the apostles were saying. And so probably they were thinking to themselves, maybe Jesus did rise from the dead, as they are saying. It is interesting to think about the connection between Christian boldness and the world's astonishment. Luke makes it sound like Peter's boldness was in fact a type of rebuke on the leaders. Now the word astonishment is the same word used to describe the disciples' reaction when Christ calmed the storm. They were astonished. They marveled at his power. Likewise, the rulers, when they heard the apostles, they were astonished. They marveled. So the rebuke on them was this. Listen, if you can hear Peter's clarity and sense his boldness, so much so that you are astonished, why continue to deny the truthfulness of his message? Why not give Jesus the glory and accept the truth of what they're saying? But this is the plight of the unregenerate mind. It will go to great lengths to deny that Jesus is truly Lord and the one who can transform us, renew our thinking, and give us boldness. If you see any boldness in me at any point, you know why that is? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus lives. He reigns over the whole world. And we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. For instance, we need to be clear about some things today. 
Why is it that we hate racism? Well, it is not because of a man-made ideology like critical race theory. We hate racism because we have been with Jesus and he tells us how to think about other people. What about social justice? Well, we don't need to hear the man-made philosophy of social justice because we know what justice is. Why? Not because we listen to the world, but because we have been with Jesus. And he tells us what it means to be just and to love other people and to hate racism and to treat everyone according to the image of God. But this is the work of Jesus in us. This is the work of Jesus in us, not the influence of a man-made ideology. And brothers and sisters, the world needs to know this. The world needs to know that our boldness, our message, and everything we do is informed by Jesus and his word, not by man-made ideologies, many of which contradict the very heart of the gospel. But we need to be clear. We need to be clear. But the unregenerate mind will insist on this question. What shall we do with these men? Secondly, the question reveals that the unregenerate mind lives in opposition to God. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Consider the irony. Seeing the man standing, the same man who just a few days prior to his conversion, to this conversation, had never stood on his feet ever before in his entire life. Seeing this man standing on his two feet with full health, they had nothing to say. Nothing to say. Now, this is very interesting. Once again, we are face to face with the unregenerate mind. If you were reading these words for the first time, you would not be wrong to be shocked. It would make much more sense to read this in verse 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they believed. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? They believed, but that's not what it says. Seeing the irrefutable proof, they had nothing to say. But notice how the sentence ends. They had nothing to say in opposition. This is how the unregenerate mind lives, in opposition to God. As Paul said in Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Believe it or not, believe it or not, I'm going to make this personal, I have witnessed this type of unregenerate, hostile thinking with my very own eyes inside churches, inside churches, by people claiming to be Christians. Some of you might remember a true story I shared from this pulpit a couple of, about a couple I baptized and married several years ago at a different church. Let's be clear about this. Not here. A different church far away from here. Now, the journey to get to their baptism and subsequent wedding was long, painful, and filled with opposition from the leaders of the church. Now, I won't give you all the details, but here's a summary. This couple, they were living in sin. I told them I needed to see true repentance coming from both of them before I could marry them. That unleashed a series of unfortunate events, difficult moments, especially with the leadership of the church. The deacons, 
and the lay pastor of the church, all of them opposed me for that decision. But I didn't change my mind. Long story short, the couple repented. I counseled them for several weeks, baptized both of them, and afterward married them. Their testimony during their baptism was truly one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And their wedding was God-honoring. So here they were, a couple restored, healed, redeemed by a gracious God, a living, walking testimony to God's goodness and God's mercy. But guess what? The leaders of that church, seeing this couple, seeing the change, witnessing the repentance and the grace operating in their lives, they had nothing to say. They could not deny what God had done in their lives. But there was no thanksgiving for the work of God in these people's lives. They had only one question in mind. What shall we do with this pastor? And here I am. You know what happened. You know how the story ended. I have seen it, brothers and sisters. Unregenerate thinking is alive and well among religious people. Ever since Adam and Eve decided to become their own gods, fallen minds have been trying to explain God away. But that's not what Christians do, for we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16. Christians always have something to say. Two words. Praise God. Praise God. But the unregenerate mind will insist on this question. What shall we do with these men? Number three, that question reveals that the unregenerate mind has no sincere desire for truth. Verses 15 and 16. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There is a contrast that I want you to see because it displays the nature of unregenerate thinking like nothing else. Now, what is that contrast? Go back in your Bibles to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Obviously, the, the main event in that chapter is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was accompanied by several miraculous or supernatural events. But notice the structure of the account. There's a structure to it. There are miracles. Then there is a preaching from Peter explaining the miracles. And then we see the people's response to the preaching. So you have miracles, preaching, and response. And the contrast between what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is precisely in how the people responded. In Acts 2, the people who witnessed the miracles and heard Peter's preaching also asked a question. And it was this in verse 37 of chapter 2. Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do about what? Well, the question was about Peter's indictment against them. They had crucified the Son of God. But now the same Jesus is exalted and he has all authority. They were pierced to the heart. They were deeply convicted of their sins. They wanted to know what to do about their betrayal of the Son of God, the Lord of glory. So if we wanted to finish the question in Acts 2.37, it would sound like this. What shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to be forgiven? That question reveals an admission of guilt, an admission of sin. Now compare that to what we are seeing in our text today in chapter 4. 
Notice that the pattern is the same. There is a miracle in chapter 3. Peter then preaches to explain the miracle, and he also calls for a response in chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. But now we encounter the rulers of Israel, and they have their own question to ask of the apostles. And interestingly, it starts the same way as in chapter 2, verse 37. What shall we do? Unfortunately, it doesn't end the same way as in chapter 2, verse 37. In the face of all the evidence displayed before their eyes, they had no interest in the truth. They had no interest in the truth, no interest in the God of the apostles. There was no conviction. There was no guilt. There was no repentance. Among these rulers who saw the miracle and heard the message, there was not one heart pierced. When the proper question would have been, what shall we do to be saved? Or what shall we do to be forgiven? Or what shall we do to know your God so that we might worship him? Instead, they asked, what shall we do with you? We want to get rid of you. We don't care about what we just saw. We don't care about the truth. We just want to get rid of you. The unregenerate mind, when left to itself, apart from grace, it does not seek salvation. The question uncovers the fact that salvation was the least of their concerns. In fact, it wasn't even in the picture. The question was a reflection of the hardness of the unregenerate heart. I will draw some important implications of this when we reach the conclusion in a few moments. But the question still stands, what shall we do with these men? How do we get rid of this threat? Now, at this point, we are led into another aspect of unregenerate thinking that must be brought to the surface and has to do with the fact that the unregenerate mind, notice this, fails to obey the second greatest commandment. It reveals that the unregenerate mind cannot truly love humanity. Notice what they said in verse 17, the, the, the rulers. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, again, let's make it personal. Let's bring it into our own context. I was reading in the Encyclopedia Britannica their definition of political correctness. It said this, and I quote, the term political correctness first appeared in Marxist-Leninist vocabulary following the Russian Revolution of 1917. At that time, it was used to describe adherence to the policies and principles of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, end quote. In other words, you were correct in your opinions and views only insofar as you spoke in line with the political narrative of the party. In its original form, political correctness was a form of speech control. But I guess this is nothing new. In verse 17, we see that these rulers had a similar thing in mind. They did not want the message of Jesus to spread any further. And this is yet another mark of the unregenerate mind. It seeks to silence the only saving message, the only hope for the world. Today, we have other forms of political correctness being imposed on society, especially on Christians. Things such as cancel culture, you've heard of that, or anti-conversion laws, of which I have spoken before. What are those things? They're nothing more than efforts to silence the message 
of the gospel. Because unregenerate minds still exist in the world. And these things normally operate with the weapon of shame. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but uh, raise your hand. Just don't raise your hand. It's just a part of the question. How many of you have ever felt shame because of things you believe and know to be true? Because you're surrounded by people who disagree with you. This is how it operates. It creates a culture of shame. The strategy is very clever. Think about this. If you can get certain ideas to get big enough, then they are harder to reject because to reject them or even to expose them means going against the majority. And the majority can exercise significant amounts of pressure on all individuals. So much so that being told, being bold for that which is unpopular becomes almost impossible. Interestingly, I recently heard someone who, to my knowledge, is not a Christian, make the following comment on live television after taking a bold stance on some controversial issues, in particular critical race theory. This person said this, and I quote, this probably not a Christian, publicly on television said this, and I quote, this is the most terrifying thing in the world to me right now, that people are afraid to talk, end quote. I agree. I agree that it is indeed an awful thing when people are afraid to speak up about things they know are evil and wrong or whatever else. But I would like to be a little more specific than that. So please let me add my own little spin to those words. Here's my version. This is the most terrifying thing in the world to me right now. When Christians are afraid to talk. Listen, my brothers and sisters. That's the real danger. That's the real tragedy. We have, we Christians, we have the most important, the most powerful, and the most loving message the world has ever heard. And the only hope for the world. And it is this, that Jesus died for sinners under the wrath of God to earn our forgiveness and reconcile us to God. This Jesus shed his blood to satisfy God's perfect righteousness, a justice which can only be defined by looking at God's perfect law. Jesus died to satisfy the demands for our transgressions against the law, which are ultimately demonstrated in the fact that we don't want to live under God's authority, but under our own. But this Jesus of Nazareth, he died in our place and he was placed in a tomb. But on the third day, he rose from the dead and he will never die again. This Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is the rightful ruler and Lord of all the nations. And thus he rightfully calls men and women everywhere to repent of their sins, to believe in his name and to walk humbly before him according to his holy word. This, my friends, is the only hope for the world. If we become silent, then people perish. They will perish. But we know why people are afraid to talk through social media and other public platforms and even threatening messages, it is now very easy to create narratives with which everyone has to agree. They become popular and they become massive and they become wide. 
And to stand against this narrative is seen as hateful, insensitive, threatening to the well-being of the majority. But Christian, you cannot fall for this. You cannot fall for this because true love is a speaking love who is not afraid to express itself in the truth as it is in Jesus. But the world will keep asking, what shall we do with these people? What shall we do with Christians? So here's the final point, and, what, and the one that seals the unregenerate mind in its own darkness. That question they ask reveals that the unregenerate mind will not submit to Jesus. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice the specificity of the rebellion that takes place in the unregenerate mind. The unregenerate mind does not simply reject authority in general. There is a very specific authority that the unregenerate mind rejects, and it is the authority of Jesus, the Lord. You can't preach in that name anymore. Why does the unregenerate mind reject the authority of Jesus? Because has, as I have already said, the primary effects of sin upon the mind is the rejection of God's supreme authority. And the supreme authority has been given to the God-man, the one exalted above the heavens. And the only way to think properly is by thinking in submission to Christ Jesus in whom all things hold together. But here's where the problem lies. Make no mistake about this. As the world rejects Jesus' comprehensive authority, in their rejection, something else will take his place. You will either follow Jesus or you will follow someone or something else, whether that is a tradition, an ideology, a person, a government, politics, a narrative, etc. But what we cannot do is pretend like we are not committed to something. The ultimate problem with the human mind is that it opposes God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is then this, what do we do in light of such dark outlook? So here are some just brief conclusions for you to consider and take home with you. The reaction of the religious leaders teaches us that the problem of humanity is not a lack of evidence, but rebellious thinking. That's, this is what they teach us. This is what these religious leaders are teaching us. The problem of humanity is not a lack of evidence that God exists, that Jesus is Lord, but rebellious thinking. In the face of this miracle, the religious leaders opted for persecuting, arresting, questioning, and threatening the disciples rather than bowing the knee to the Lord they proclaimed. In a similar way, think about this. Let's make a connection. Humans, they can see the wonder of creation. They can see the wonder of creation. And yet, they would rather create the narrative of evolution rather than accept the obvious, namely, that creation reveals the glory and the existence of God, the one to whom they are accountable and owe their obedience. Paul said it in Romans 1 that the existence of God has been clearly revealed in the things that have been created. Therefore, those who deny the existence of God do so only by suppressing that which they know to be true. And they do so in unrighteousness. This, my friend, is the unregenerate mind. 
They would rather deny the existence of God by suppressing the truth because if you can remove God from your mind, then you can remove absolutes from your mind. And if you can remove absolutes from your mind, then everything goes. Everything goes. And in the face of truth, whether that truth is creation itself or a miracle, sinners would rather get rid of Christians than accept the truth and bow the knee before Christ. No sinner lacks evidence. They simply lack a new heart. Remember this. Remember what I just said. No sinner lacks evidence. They simply lack a new heart, which this is the second conclusion here. The reaction of the religious leaders teaches us that the success of our evangelism is in the power of the Spirit, not in the weight of evidence. The success of our evangelism before the world is in the power of the Spirit, never in the weight of evidence. Brothers and sisters, we cannot forget that when we preach, when we evangelize, when we make a defense of the gospel, we are standing before spiritually dead people. And yes, from a human standpoint, it is utterly hopeless. When we look at the world, we stand, as it were, in front of a valley of dead bones. Just like Ezekiel. And as he did, as Ezekiel stood there before the valley of dead bones, he knew he was powerless. The revival of dead bones is way beyond our power. But God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel very wisely said, Lord, you know. You know. And God said, prophesy. Prophesy. Prophesy to these bones. Speak to them. The unregenerate mind is too big for us. It's too big for us. But it is not too big for the gospel of Christ. How do we overcome? We prophesy. We keep preaching. We keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to dead souls. God brings them to life. Apart from the transforming grace of God in the heart, no amount of demonstrations of power of God will bring about faith. Hostility against God cannot be overcome by external evidences, but only by the internal work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And finally, finally, the reaction of the religious leaders teaches us that salvation is the work of God alone. Salvation is the work of God alone. Brothers and sisters, as we go into the world, we must remind ourselves that we have only one weapon. One weapon. And it is not your intellect. Otherwise, the disciples would have failed for they were uneducated and they were common. It is not our degrees. It is not our academic achievements. It is not our sophistications or our philosophies. We have only one weapon as we go into the world. The gospel. For only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have nothing else. And we trust the Lord Jesus Christ who owns the world. Would you pray, pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reminder. I pray that you will take the word that has been spoken this morning and apply it to our hearts. Help us to know what it means to trust you. And we consider the 
the people of Israel, as they were led away from Egypt and they were brought by you in front of the Red Sea and behind them was the army of Pharaoh and they were helpless, but yet you are God and you performed a miracle and you saved your people. In the same way, when we think about the unregenerate mind and the condition of the world, we may sometimes feel trapped, but yet we remember that you are God and that there is nothing impossible for you. So we pray, Lord, for revival. We pray that you will open the eyes of the blind, that those who are walking in darkness, whether here in different states or around the world, that you will move by your spirit and by the faithful proclamation of your word by your people to bring about salvation, to continue to save people so that they may glorify you. Thank you for this church, for what you're doing in our lives. May all the glory be given unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.